You're listening to the Beaver Tales podcast, which features exclusive interviews with former Oregon State student athletes. We talk about what they did at OSU, what the transition was like away from college athletics, and what they're passionate about now. Here's a little taste of what's coming up on this episode. For me, I always really wanted to make people feel like it's okay if you're struggling and as long as you communicate understand that people are there for you people are around you no matter what that's coming up on this episode now i use this podcast to give free advertising to charities so to hear about a great nonprofit you can support stay tuned to the end of this episode this is the Beaver Tales podcast with Josh Wharton, who has covered Oregon State athletics since 2013. Joining the podcast today, a Pac-10 champion, a first-team all-conference in both balance beam and uneven bars, a second-team all-American on bars and beam, former Oregon State gymnast Laura Ann Chong. Laura Ann helped start a trend of more international gymnasts coming to Oregon State. You may remember Leslie Mack's episode recently where she actually talked about Laura Ann Chong when recounting her decision to come to OSU. Laura Ann Chong hails from just outside Vancouver, B.C., in a town called Coquitlam, which she told me means smelly fish in the indigenous language. So if nothing else, you learned one thing today about Coquitlam, British Columbia. Now, Laura Ann Chong was also an alternate on the Canadian national team in the 2004 Olympics. And after her standout career at OSU, she got into Cirque du Soleil, where she joined as an acrobat about seven years ago. Her stories of learning the choreography were fun, but even more meaningfully, the lessons she learned about mental health which led her to help start a project in that arena of mental health you'll hear more about near the end of our conversation. So please welcome a Pac-10 champion, All-American, former Oregon State gymnast, and perhaps the most acrobatic person on this podcast so far, Laura Ann Chong. It's really good to have you on, Laura Ann. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. How are things going for you up in Vancouver? Great. Thanks for having me, Josh. I'm really excited to get back in touch with my Oregon State peeps. Um, And yeah, Vancouver's been nice. It's probably been the longest time I've been home since high school. So it's been a journey and um, definitely getting used to being back, which is nice. How did you first join the the Beaver Nation family or even actually even choose to come to college in America to begin with, even before you chose Oregon State? So I was a gymnast ever since I was about two years old. Um, Not that I really knew what that meant at the time, but, you know, I was a kid who always had all the energy and climbing the columns at home and, you know, the parents are going crazy. Um, And then I got brought to a family friend's birthday party and just never really left the gym ever since then. So I eventually got onto the Canadian national team and was an alternate for the 2004 Olympics, which was pretty cool to be a part of. And then after that, you know, like as a gymnast, I always kind of had two goals. One was to go to the Olympics and the next was to get a scholarship to um, an American university. I think growing up as a young gymnast, you kind of always know those are your two courses um, and pathways and at least for a competitive gymnast. And so, yeah, it was like once Olympics was done, it was um, time to focus on what was going to happen after high school. But to be honest, coming from Canada, I had no idea what NCAA gymnastics was all about. I didn't know what programs were good. I didn't even know what schools existed. 
Um, so in that side, I was completely blindsided. But um, yeah, that's how I kind of thought of it. And then when it came time to for the recruiting process, um, I had quite a few schools reach out. But as I said, like I didn't know <laughs> where these schools were or um, anything about the gym programs. Um, luckily, my coach had some friends who were in the programs or one of his close friends was actually at Cal Berkeley and he was the assistant coach there. So that coach actually came to Elite Canada and I spent some time getting to know him and felt like I really bonded with him at the time. So um, I verbally committed early. Uh, I think it was either the end of my grade 10 year or early grade 11 year, which as I said, completely, um, completely blindsided, didn't really know what I was committing to. <laughs> but by the end of that year, my, that coach that I was going to Cal for, he ended up transferring um, away from the school. And so I hadn't actually talked to the head coach at the time. And that's kind of when it was probably like end of grade 11 now. And uh, Oregon State started to reach out um, because I, I got put on the transfer list kind of thing. And, and yeah, Michael and Tanya reached out. I knew, about, I knew of Oregon because we used to go there and um, camp in Oregon as a kid. And uh, yeah, it was somewhat close to home, but not too close to home. <laughs> so yeah, Oregon State was kind of like a shoe in once I came to visit the campus. I loved it. I felt like I was at home um, and I loved being on the West Coast. So yeah. <laughs> so they, they swooped in and nabbed you away from Cal and, and the rest is history and Pac-10 championship. Where, where did you come down to Oregon and camp when you, was that when you were a kid and, and traveled around or where did you come in Oregon? Yeah. So when I was growing up, my family loved to go on road trips and go camping. So we'd always go down to like Newport and the coast. Um, we'd hit the dunes. We would, my dad was really into like flying kites, like the stunt kites. Okay. So we'd always go there and I have many pictures and videos of me almost like getting dragged across the beach because the winds were too strong or something like that. Um, but yeah, so I, I really, you know, felt at home. Uh, and one of the things too, I actually put this on like my, I think it's still on my bio, actually, if you look up my Oregon State bio, but it says like, I didn't want to go anywhere that dealt with hurricanes or floods or tornadoes, because I just, I'm from the West Coast, and I don't know how to deal with those things. <laughs> Earthquakes I can handle, but <laughs> yeah. I do remember reading that and I was like, you know, almost every single answer to those questions is nearly identical. I chose Oregon State because of the great coaches and atmosphere. And that's a fine answer. Like that, that's a reasonable response, but it's just the same as every single other one. You are so unique of, I didn't want natural disasters. I was like, well, I've never heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think like um, at one point, like I had some SEC schools, you know, trying to recruit me and stuff. And I was just like, I can't deal with crocodiles and alligator, yeah, alligators and um, sorry, crocodiles aren't there, but <laughs> you know, and I can't deal with floods or yeah. What if a tornado comes? I don't know what to do. <laughs> the funny thing is you've now traveled to close to what, 40 countries, at least like 38, I think at last count. 38. 38. Yeah. So if you were scared, I mean, not that you didn't live in 38 and necessarily experience natural disasters all over the world, but if there was a, a hesitancy to get outside of, of your comfort zone, it, it seems like you did ultimately cross that threshold. I did, but oddly enough, um, even though I've traveled so much, I haven't actually had to deal with natural disasters so much as 
I've, I have had to deal with some other um, secure, like national security issues, which was scary. We can get into that a little bit later, but um, yeah, <laughs> I still managed to stay away from too much national, uh, natural disasters, but uh, we did have some crazy like windstorms where we thought the tent was going to be flying away or something like that. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah, let's talk about Oregon State a little bit and then come back to post-OSU life and travel and Cirque du Soleil and all that stuff. When you were at OSU, you, you chose uh, OSU for the reasons you just brought up, but what was something that maybe uh, you didn't expect to happen, how you, the friends you made, how the community impacted you, how you grew as a person where you wouldn't have known that was going to happen or your experience in OSU when you came in, but by the end you realized, oh, I'm glad I came to OSU for this reason, even if I didn't expect that. Does anything come to mind like that? Definitely. You know, I mentioned how I'm from Canada and we didn't know a whole lot about NCAA gymnastics. You heard of UCLA, of course, like huge schools that have these histories of winning national championships and getting, you know, the top Olympians to their programs. But one thing about Oregon State, I kind of liked that it was this tiny college town that no one really knew what it was and purely exists because of the university, you know. Coming from like Metro Vancouver area, I don't really know what it's like to live in a small town like that. And I know some people wouldn't consider Corvallis as a small town, but <laughs> for me, you know, and going to Albany 20 minutes away is like a day's venture. Um, that's a that's a pretty small town for me. But I, at the time, I was actually one of the first Canadians or even international students really to come to the gymnastics team at Oregon State, and that was pretty amazing to kind of be that person to introduce cultural diversity to the team. Of course, you know, there's the typical American versus Canadian haggling or whatnot, you know, but uh, it was it was definitely quite eye-opening. Because I lived in Vancouver and we came to the States a lot, it wasn't too crazy. But of course, like, I think when my dad came to visit me in, in October um, during dad's weekend, my freshman year, he comes down and I'm talking away and he just looks at me and he goes, you sound so American. I was like, what? <laughs> and it's because I always got made, a fun, made fun of for saying A. And so I think I consciously tried not to say that. And then certain fluctuations and words that we use, you know, I, I tried to sound, you know, blend in, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> so that was kind of um, fun and interesting. Um, and then, of course, just like the whole community and uh, support that the gymnastics team got at Oregon State felt so amazing. Um, gymnastics as a sport doesn't always get the highlights, you know, um, and I felt like in Corvallis, we really kind of stepped it up. Like the gymnastics team was idolized and we had so many of the community children looking up to us and constantly wanting to like take our picture or, you know, and I'm just like, we're just we're just gymnasts, you know, you, like, yeah, you'd think this from the football players or basketball players, but like, it was really cool to be on the other side of it for a little bit. And Michael and Tanya are so great at keeping the team um, atmosphere light and fun and having the support no matter what you're going through. Um, and of course, the teammates, like all the girls are amazing and we're all learning and growing together. Um, so that was really fun. And actually, one of the things with uh, one of my teammates, um, Mandy Rodriguez, which I'm sure you know of, uh, we <laughs> discovered that we both had almost been teammates at Cal Berkeley before we came to Oregon State. So that was kind of a fun little um, connection to have. 
That's awesome. Well, Oregon State's lucky to have you both. And it was cool to see you sort of as a trendsetter to, to come from Canada. I mean, I talked with Leslie Mack, she brought you up as another person who had come from Canada. And then more recently, there have been other Canadian gymnasts, Sabrina Gill more recently, and, and other international gymnasts, Isis Lauer from Australia. And so it definitely did seem like a like a change or just more a wide, you know, diversity of athletes coming from everywhere. For sure. Yeah, it was pretty cool to, you know, be one of the first international students there um, on the on the gymnastics team. And then almost every year after that, I think in the recruiting class, we had at least one or two international students. Um, and I think, yeah, it was pretty amazing to see like Canadians paying more attention to Oregon State after and um, getting some big names, you know, Maddie Gardner even or Sabrina Gill. And um, yeah, so that was, that was pretty cool to see. What was the significance of your beam music and your balance beam routine, the music you would play? So uh, I don't know why, because when I was a gymnast, I never even thought of going into Cirque du Soleil or like having that as a career. But for some reason, I was a very nervous competitor. Um, and, you know, beam and nerves don't mix at all. <laughs> and so for some reason, I really just liked the soundtrack Alegria from Cirque du Soleil's show. And so that was the beam song I chose to play in Gill Coliseum. Every home meet, I'd have to have Alegria playing during my beam. And um, I don't know, it just kind of calmed me down, I guess. Uh, all my teammates made fun of me for it because they were like, out of all the songs in the entire world, you, do, you choose this Cirque du Soleil song. But it was kind of, I don't know, maybe it was an omen for what was to come next. But um, yeah, it was pretty, pretty random. Right. And then so once you finish at OSU, I'm not sure how quick it was following your time at OSU, but you ultimately do get into Cirque du Soleil and acrobatics with them. And then maybe you were like, hey, I've used your music in my beam routine. Come hire me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I definitely put a note to that in my demo, in my video demo when I was applying to Cirque du Soleil. Um, but yeah, it was uh, I graduated from Oregon State and then I actually ended up trying to get back into gymnastics and grad school and stuff. And so it was uh, about a year, year and a half after I graduated that I um, eventually went to Oregon State, or sorry, went to Cirque du Soleil. But, uh, but yeah, it was pretty, uh, kind of came round circle. <laughs> Once you did join Cirque and start to get involved, what was that process like of learning the acrobatics of, of it's I mean obviously gymnastics would set you set you up for that but I'm sure you had to learn some new things and the routines I don't even know so what, what was that learning process like yeah I was it's definitely different for everyone some people get recruited right from competition or gameplay or whatever sport they're in um, so there are recruiters that go to these competitions and events and they're just like hey we think you're really talented and you know have you ever thought of a career in Cirque du Soleil if so like we might have a contract for you for me I was actually this was after I had graduated from Oregon State I didn't get into grad school um, that I wanted to get into. And then I decided to start training gymnastics again and try for the 2012 Olympics, because this was the fall of 2011. And halfway through the competition season, I was kind of like, I don't think I really want to do this anymore. Um, 
I, I love gymnastics and I love, you know, I would love to do something active, but at the same time, you know, in order, I knew to my, I knew myself that I had to be mentally um, disciplined, you know, to get the training in. And if you're not there, you're not there. And I just kind of realized that, you know, maybe it's, it's a long shot, but also I'm just not that committed anymore. And so I was at Gymnix International in Quebec and um, I saw, you know, Cirque du Soleil is always there at that competition. Um, and I started talking to the physio and he was one of the head physios at Cirque du Soleil headquarters, international headquarters in Montreal. So I mentioned it to him and he was like, oh, you know, that, that would be really great for you. So that's kind of how I got the wheels turning about Cirque. And then I got invited to the international headquarters um, to be a part of what they called uh, Formation Generale, which was a program that they used to do and they would bring in 10 to 20 future acrobats um, and basically teach them a variety of skills and it was a way for them to train the person so that when a contract did open on a show they could plug in much quicker than if they were to just come in um, without any kind of previous exposure to Cirque. Um, so yeah so that's kind of how I got involved with Cirque uh, initially. Yeah. When you started learning some of the choreography and all that, what was what was one of the movements uh, that maybe didn't come from a gymnastics background? Like I have no, I've never done that in a routine. So actually, the skills were not. I think because the skills were similar enough to uneven bars that we did in gymnastics. Like yes, our structure we had four bars instead of two. And at times there was going to be eight to nine girls on the bars um, instead of just one. Right. But at the same time, I kind of looked at it like it's gymnastics, like I'm doing bars. So that part wasn't too crazy. Um, there were some skills that we got to learn to do that you don't do in gym anymore, obviously. Um, and uh, I, I got to learn how to do like the Corbett flip, which is uh, one of the most iconic you know Olga Corbett you've heard of Olga Corbett um and she stood on the bar she does a backflip and she catches the bar again um so that was one of the skills that I got to learn how to do and eventually perform almost every night um so that was really cool but the hardest part I think was actually the character building and like being able to get rid of the gymnastics mindset of having to be perfect and having to overthink every movement and just letting that go um, that was for sure the hardest part. And anytime we had a new uh, girl come and join our, our, our troop, because um, they were all gymnasts as well, uh, that was always the most difficult part. You know, um, if they screwed up on stage or something like that, how do you not show that to the audience? Because most likely they have no idea. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, that was definitely the most challenging. Um, the skills are fun to learn. And we even got to work on like old school bars where they're close and some girls are beating their hips and stuff like that, um, which of course is hard on the body if you're not used to it. But, uh, but yeah, definitely the more challenging was all the character building stuff. How did you learn in that topic of character building? You said you were a, a nervous performer even at Oregon State. So did you manage to, to lose that tendency a little bit? And if so, how did you do that? Yeah, I think, um, so during this Formation Generale program that I did, um, we would do classes called Buffon, which is 
kind of over-exaggerated acting, clown acting. Um, and you just have to go in there and make a complete fool of yourself, basically. <laughs> and there's, uh, you know, everyone's doing it, so you have to get, let go of that shield. That for sure helps you because you realize, you know, you're here for a reason, and that's to portray whatever character you are in the show. And if you're so much in your head and overthinking, oh, I look silly if I do this, then the audience is going to see that and they're never going to connect with you and they're not going to think that the show is very good, right? Um, so that definitely helped. But then also once I did get to the show that I performed on, we, as we worked through the character, the choreography, it was really helpful for me that I was joining a troupe that was all ex-gymnasts. So my, all nine girls that I worked with, um, or eight at the time, it was really fortunate where they all were, yeah, either ex-national team Olympians or ex-NCAA gymnasts. And so that was really cool because we all knew what the transition was like. And we all knew if someone was, you know, in their head too much, we knew why. Um, and we could really understand that. So I think that really helped us, everyone every day, basically. When you were competing with Cirque du Soleil, doing all the routines and performances, you were learning a lot both athletically, but also a lot beyond that. So what, what was kind of an area where even just beyond the performance aspect that we've just talked about, things that'll serve you well going forward, areas where you want to help other people? Um, what's one of the biggest things that you've grown in and learned and gained passions for through your time at Cirque du Soleil, but beyond Cirque du Soleil? I think uh, when I... Well, during Cirque, like I was lucky to be on a big top touring show. So we were traveling um, four to six weeks. Sometimes we were in the city for up to nine weeks at a time. And so we became really close knit, like the entire tour. There's 120 of us, um, artists, technicians, office staff, the plumber, you know, mm -hmm. like there's it's a city. It really is. You know, when they say like it takes a village, it really, really does. Um, and because we're constantly changing our external environments, we all had to learn how to cope together and understand um, everyone's going to be up and down, you know. And uh, sometimes we were in cities where things just were not working out. Like, you know, the site was flooding. We had crazy windstorms of, I think it was, I, we had like a... Where I don't even know what they're called and my rigor is going to kill me for not knowing this, but <laughs> um, it was like a wind pedometer type thing, you know, and uh, there was one time where we were in South America in Montevideo and there was this, they call it like this annual windstorm that happens because of, you know, legend has it, um, the goddess brings in this windstorm and yeah, there's this whole thing. Um, but we happened to be there for that storm and um, everyone had to evacuate site. Luckily it was, I believe after the shows that night, but powers went out, you know, and um, the site got flooded, all of our fences fell down. And when some of the site people got to site the next day, you know, like the tops of the big topper, they were actually like blown off the top and um, tipped over. And so that was really insane. And um, I forget where I was going with this, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> kind of the, the ups and downs, right? Like it, it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you have to endure a lot, whether in Cirque or outside. I, I get what you're going. Yeah, yeah that's where. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so it was times like that where 
a lot of us weren't South American at all, you know, as a Canadian or even an American, um, in North America, we're often told South America is not really a place you go to unless it's maybe Brazil, you know, um, but you always, the first things you hear is, oh, it's so dangerous. You're going to, you know, get mugged. You're going to, you know, be sexually harassed or just, it's got so many bad perceptions about it. And so everyone was, this was only our for, uh, second city in South America at the time too. So everyone was nervous and like didn't really know what to do I didn't speak Spanish a lot of people didn't speak Spanish but it's really amazing what that community can do and come together and help each other raise up so from that I really wanted to I don't know if that was the first incident we actually had an incident in Europe as well but mental health really became something that I've always been interested in as a gymnast, I always worked with a sports psychologist. As I mentioned, I was a very nervous competitor. And so in order to get through that, I worked with a sports psych. And now in the media, we're hearing so much about some Gymnast Alliance stories and the toxic culture that can happen. And um, unfortunately, that some of that happened to me as well. And so you're still struggling getting through that and understanding what happens, you know, some of the lasting effects that can happen. And so for me, I always really wanted to make people feel like it's okay if you're struggling. And as long as you communicate, understand that people are there for you. People are around you no matter what. And so I remember like Taylor Ritchie, she started her whole um, campaign and I was so proud of her also because Taylor was one of the little kids at the gym when I was training and then to see her come to Oregon State and just absolutely kill it and I'm next thing I know I'm seeing her in Sports Illustrated um so yeah it was pretty cool to have that happen um and this whole pandemic kind of put a spin on that for me and made me feel like I needed to reach out to my colleagues as well for that so yeah, it, it has been cool to see the the damn worth it campaign that you're mentioning that Taylor Ritchie has been a really uh, integral part of another Oregon State gymnast. And I didn't even know the connection when she was young, but that, that's really cool to see. Uh, yeah. it, it's in that topic of, of mental health and, and especially like toxic cultures in gymnastics. It can be, I don't know if common's the right word, but when you start so young, you yourself started at age two is that when things go wrong, when there's some, you know, poor leadership or toxic culture, it, it can just kind of seem to cycle because you're in that culture for so long and you do gymnastics for so long if you go through college. Um, I listened to a podcast recently that you posted and I listened to the whole thing. It was, it was titled, Our Gym Culture Was Toxic. Here's How We Fixed It. So for people who haven't heard that podcast, what, what's something that they brought up that resonated with you or something that you've learned about fixing toxic culture? Oh my gosh, everything. So that podcast is by The Shift Show. Um, definitely give it a listen. And obviously, you know, on Netflix, there's Athlete A. Um, there's uh, on YouTube. Now there's a series called Defying Gravity that just came out. And so it's not that this gymnastics culture, this toxic culture was, you know, only for a couple gyms this was like a global gymnastics culture. And I think, honestly, it's because you're dealing with athletes who are so young and, you know, immature because they don't have that opportunity to go and, you know, they're not starting training at 12, 14 years old. They're starting training as toddlers. Um, 
And so when you are brought up in a situation and a culture where the people you answer to are your parents and your coach, you know, and then as you're getting more advanced in your gymnastics, you start to pay, you start to spend way more time with your coaches than with your parents. You know, I think uh, I honestly could say my coaches were like my second parents and a lot of the times my coaches were living in our basement at the time because either they were new to the country or the province and um, we lived close to the gym that I was I was training at at the time and so we'd take in those coaches so they really did become part of my family Um, and so when we talk about the toxic culture in gymnastics it's something that I feel so strongly about um, because almost I don't want to say almost every gymnast, but it's so prevalent to so many of us where at one time or another, you are either experiencing it or you are seeing it happen to other gymnasts, but you, we haven't been given the opportunity, maybe not opportunity, but the avenue to be able to say something that, Hey, this is wrong. We need to change this we don't feel like as a gymnast, you don't have that power to to do that. You don't feel that power. So it is a huge power struggle, right? And I think that's one of the main things that um, this podcast and the whole Gymnast Alliance movement is showing is that the organizations, the national organizations don't, uh, they don't structure it well enough where a gymnast who is 11 years old going through something that they really shouldn't be going through um, can say something without the fear of getting in trouble. Um, Whether this means getting pulled into the office and being yelled at by the coaches, whether this means getting uh, kicked off a team or not being able to compete or having to go and do 10 extra rope climbs. So this is the struggle. And um, I really liked that podcast because they didn't just bring up the issues. By now, most of us are aware of the issues, but they kind of started talking about, okay, here are the steps and here's the different language that we can use to start building that relationship again and start having that structure again. Um, Unfortunately, gymnastics is one of those sports where we do have a lot of coaches who grew up in one era of gymnastics, such as the 60s and 70s, and they're still coaching today the same way that they did back then. Or there are new coaches in the cycle, but they've only learned how to coach from those old techniques. Um, And so I think as the federations start to restructure, they need to go back into who's actually coaching right now and um, really kind of hone in on how we can provide resources and how we can restructure it in a way that, you know, the gymnasts feel safe, the parents feel safe and the coaches feel safe. Cause I remember competing a lot and it, you know, I, I witnessed a lot of behavior from coaches to gymnasts that shouldn't have happened, but it was always the culture of that's your gymnast. You deal with them, how you're going to deal with them. This is my gymnast. You don't tell me how to deal with my gymnast. And that's something that really needs to change, I think. So let me give you a hypothetical scenario. Let's say you were going to be a a new coach at a gym, like one of the head coaches or assistant coaches. 
and you've got to help establish the culture in some way, or you're asking questions about what the culture is already like in terms of how you organize the practices, how you communicate with the parents of the kids, how you, how you would discipline kids if they're acting out, you know, what's your kind of strategy for the situation. So let's say you come into the gym and it's your kind of first meeting with the other coaches. What, what would be the things you would focus on of here's kind of the ground rules we want to establish at this gym to make sure the culture is healthy? What, what would you start with? Definitely just making sure that number one is communication. So if I'm the head coach, for example, um, I would make sure all of my coaches feel like they could come to me. Um, if they see another coach maybe misbehaving, or if they see a gymnast who feels you know, she's retracted, she doesn't necessarily feel comfortable with a specific coach. That's like the first thing. The next thing is also to make sure that the parents are also involved and understand this communication because a lot of the times the coaches and the gymnasts might have one situation going on and then you have what we call these like crazy gym parents who are just like, I don't care how it's done, but my my gymnast is going to be on this team or going to be competing or whatever moving up the next level you know and that's not creating any kind of positivity for the gymnasts you know they're going to go home after and just be constantly asked why didn't you do this at gym you know and so that's going to make them retreat um, it's just going to add more pressure to everyone and as the coach you need to explain to the parents hey this this is just how it is your daughter's or son if they're not moving up a level, it's not because they're behind, you know, it's because we need to make sure that they understand the basics of whatever the skill, the routine, um, and really just, it's all about the safety, right? Like gymnastics is super fun. I love it, but it can also be super dangerous. And the worst thing is when I see a coach allowing a gymnast to just throw skills because they want to do the big tricks. You know, my coach was very much about the basics and always understanding the basics of how each skill can be broken down. And that's one thing that I really think is maybe why I can still do it because I, I didn't just go and throw myself and not understand what I was doing. Um, so yeah, I, I, that's a really hard question though, because like every gym is, is different and have their different struggles, you know? But I think communication is like the key, especially if you're really um, serious about reforming how things are going to work, you know, um, and it's okay to like grab a gymnast and pull them aside and be like, hey, what's going on, you know, instead of just screaming at them, you're not trying, you're not working hard enough, and punishing them by doing more conditioning or something like that, you know, um, obviously, gymnasts, especially if they're starting to get into the um, adolescent puberty phase you know their hormones might be going up and down uh, attitudes are going to start coming out and so if you are dealing with a gymnast who is struggling with that like really take the time that's the time that you need to like be even more persistent and try to like dig down and help help them find out what's going on because that that person's so confused as it is and that's probably why they're acting out and if they know that you you, as the coach, you're there in their corner, they're going to be able to help you with that. And maybe they're having issues at home, you know, maybe that's not a good home environment for them. So they need to feel like 
you're their safe haven. So I think as a coach, like that's, yes, you're there to like teach them the sport, but you're there to help them get through whatever external or internal struggles they're dealing with. And um, yeah, just really be there for them. Last question on this topic, and then we'll finish with kind of a, a, a fun question. You brought up mental health briefly, and then we've talked a lot about culture, especially gym culture and, and how to make that healthy. I'm curious of when you first spent more time processing through and being passionate about mental health, was that directly from the topic of gym culture and toxic environments, like that was very related, or is it in some different realm? What, what area of mental health did you become more interested in and realize the seriousness of? I think mine's always stems back to gymnastics, to be honest, um, because I do know so many gymnasts who are struggling with mental health in one way or another because of um, the cultures that they were in when they were younger. Uh, but having said that, now that I'm, you know, a little bit away from gym, like, uh, for example, with this pandemic that's happened, um, my whole entertainment industry with Cirque du Soleil, with Feld Entertainment, with Broadway, concerts, like anything that has to do with events, our whole industries have just completely crashed and burned and we have no idea when they're coming back. Of course, the pandemic has hit everyone and has made everyone have to adapt. But if you're working in the restaurant business, you know that there's gonna be restaurants that open again. It's not to like downplay anyone's struggles, of course. I, I never would want anyone to think that. Um, I know we all are struggling at different levels, but in terms of the entertainment industry, especially the live entertainment industry, we all really have absolutely no idea when we can start having these shows again. Um, and that was something that really, really struggled and hit me hard um, personally, but also it hit me hard because I could see so many of my colleagues starting to just completely lose it, you know, especially if they were on tour, because as I mentioned, we had like 120 people where we were so close knit. We saw each other six days out of seven days a week. Um, and often on that seventh day, you would still go and hang out with those people to explore the city or whatever. Um, and, uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, this actually this kind of, I'm going to bring up one more incident that happened. Um, we were actually, my show in particular, we were actually in Paris the year that the Bataclan got hit with the terrorist attacks. And so we all came out of the show. Um, we had finished our show. We, no one really knew like I had no idea what was going on, on on my phone. Like I just had a message from one of my friends who was here in Vancouver and he goes, Oh, there was a shooting in Paris. Are you okay? And I was like, Oh, like, unfortunately being from North America and hearing a lot of, especially what happens in the States with shootings, it, it happens too often. So in a way I, I was a little desensitized to it. I was like, yeah, okay. There was a shooting, but I'm fine, you know, but then um, we're all, we get on the shuttles to go back to our hotels. And at the time we were staying in two different areas. So half the tour was staying downtown and half the tour was staying in a district called La Defense. And um, so my bus left to go to La Defense, but the downtown bus got held at site um, for quite a few hours after because of what was going on. Um, the attacks were still live at the time. And so by the time my bus got home, 
you know, I think I had like six or seven people come into my room and we're all just sitting there watching the TV, just unreal what was happening at the time. And it was absolutely devastating. It was absolutely terrifying at the same time. Half of us were thinking, are we going home? What about the other half of the tour that's not here? And so that was a huge national security debacle that we were trying to deal with. Um, And it was devastating. Paris got shut down for three days of mourning afterwards. Um, Our show didn't return for another week. Um, All the shows were can't all shows were canceled, you know, like they couldn't uh, secure areas. They didn't know if there was going to be attacks again. And at one time, even La Defense was like targeted as a potential area. And so that I was like freaking out, you know, (laughs) but, um, but we got through it. And uh, it just kind of shows like, okay, we can get through anything, you know. And so when the pandemic hit, just to bring back to this, it was another crisis that happened. But unfortunately, we weren't like my show in particular, because we had our final show March 1st where Amaluna was the show I was on, um, we had actually like already scheduled, we knew our show was gonna be closing before COVID even happened. Um, our tour was ending, so we had our final show, our goodbyes, and then we all dispersed. And so that was really hard and it still is, sometimes it's still isolating. Um, and so that's why me and some colleagues from Cirque, we decided to start Project Lumiere. Um, it's a Facebook page, It's a way that anyone in the live entertainment industry can come join feel like they're still part of a community because a lot of people they you know some people are, are courageous enough to speak out on their personal Facebook pages being like hey I'm really struggling today I would love if you could send me a heart or send me some love but a lot of people can't do that you know even I I feel self-conscious doing that and so this is like a group where anyone can join feel like you're not alone we're all going through the same thing Um, and also offer uh, well-being advice Um, we're gonna have like yoga and pilates uh, classes where you have um, some registered or or doctored uh, psychologists come on for like a webinar or something like that Um, and also like some career guidelines uh, or sorry not guidelines but advice because Right now, as I mentioned, we have no idea when the live events are coming back. And so especially for maybe a performer, our, what we do is not so trans, you know, we can't just go and start flipping in any kind of office. <laughs> and so um, we focused a lot on like, okay, how, or even like a technician, maybe they don't want to be doing what they're doing anymore. Um, so how do we see the skills that we were working on and how do we transfer those to other skills or other um, careers? also looking into resume building and stuff like that because yeah it'll just be it's just like a project that I, I, I really felt passionate about because I saw so many people struggling and I'm struggling and you know it's always better to do it together than alone um, and no one's alone. You've started that project and, and put some meat on the bones and really you know created infrastructure to, to make that impactful for people. Uh, I'll put a, a link to the Facebook page if that helps um, and, and help people, you know, know how to access that for uh, Project Lumiere, right? Lumiere. Yeah, yeah, Project Lumiere. Yeah, it's French and English, so <laughs> my French accent's too bad, so I'm not going to say that. <laughs> gotcha. the French part, but, but yeah, Project Lumiere, um, it's great. It's and, and, you know, I'm constantly looking for people who are willing to come and have a little webinar for us. Um, so if, if 
one of you feel like your services could be helpful, um, I would really appreciate that. Please reach out. Um, I have uh, actually a, a former Oregon State sports psychology professor. Um, <laughs> he was actually going to come on. Uh, he was one of my favorite professors. And so he's going to come on and do a little webcast for us. So that'll be nice. Awesome. Well, last thing, since I've taken up so much of your time, Laura, Ann, thanks so much. Uh, you've traveled to 38 countries and you've had some crazy experiences. You said, luckily, no, too, too you know, absurd of natural disasters, but some other fun stories. Uh, what was, you know, maybe a favorite experience overseas in any of those countries you visited? Oh, um, my favorite with Cirque du Soleil, honestly, it varies so much. Um, I really just miss performing and it's not so much I miss performing like for myself. I miss being able to like be a part of the escape that people come to see. You know, like we always talk about how Cirque du Soleil, why did Cirque du Soleil become such a big thing? And it's because they've been able to create these environments, these shows that allow people to come and escape whatever they're going through. Just come for two and a half hours, feel immersed in some other world. And uh, I really miss making that connection for people. And sometimes, you know, we're doing six or sorry, we're doing eight to 10 shows a week. Um, and by Sunday's shows, because that's our last day of the week, um, we're exhausted, you know. But for me, one thing that always got me through was like, okay, if I'm feeling like that, I need to really look at the audience find at least one or two people and for that particular show. And I'm like, this show is for you. You know, everything I'm doing is because I want you to feel this escape and feel this emotion that we're trying to convey. Um, so I really, really miss that. That's, and it's something that can speak over every language, every culture. It doesn't matter where in the world you are. Um, doesn't matter what kind of diversity, you know, issues are going on and, whatever's going on <laughs> yeah politically or anything like that um we're there to like help just transport you and um unfortunately that's something that i think the world really 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 needs right now and we can't offer that um but there are some people who are trying to do some online shows or things like that i know it's totally different but yeah i definitely miss that uh for sure <laughs> A lot of good stuff. Hey, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast, Lauren. It's been really fun to catch up and best of luck going forward with Project Lumiere and everything else you got going. Thank you so much, Josh. It's, it's great to be part of uh, Beaver Nation. And I miss, I, miss I, I need to get back down to Gravelis once the borders reopen yeah. or maybe a little bit after they reopen. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> take, yeah, take your time. But yeah, come, come down and, and see a gymnastics mate. It'll be, it'll be fun. For sure. Thank you so much. Well, that was a lot of fun to hear from Laura Ann Chong. A lot of different areas and things she's done since OSU Cirque du Soleil, but then what that's taught her about traveling overseas, seeing countries in a different way, seeing her own life in a different way, the mental health component, not to mention how to create a healthy culture in gymnastics. And I think a lot of those priorities, a lot of those values are also true in a work environment and things a lot beyond gymnastics, but certainly you can learn a lot in a very serious and early age from gymnastics in particular. So my thanks to Laura and Chong for joining the podcast. I'd also like to mention a charity real quick that you can check out in lieu of advertisers. I instead feature nonprofits like Convoy of Hope, which does a lot of work all around the country, especially in disaster relief, helping communities right when they're at need of help 
at the worst times, those big news stories where you feel like, oh, I wish I, there was some way to help or some organization I could give to a little bit that would do some good work. Well, Convoy of Hope is that organization. So you can learn more about them with a link in the description and donate there if you can. Coming up on the Beaver Tales podcast, I've got an Oregon State women's basketball player from the 80s. That's Carol Weaver. Also, Megan Miller, Oregon State women's soccer player. Plus, Taylor Wentworth, formerly Taylor Stadzinski, former Oregon State volleyball player. And a lot of other guests in the works as well. Thanks for tuning in to the Beaver Tales podcast. As always, I'm Josh Warden. Good night and go Beavs.